the Road by Cormac McCarthy is a novel, bleak novel, about life in a post-apocalyptic world where the only thing you have to hold on to is human relationship. The, the plot is rather simple. It's a father and son just trying to walk south to avoid the onset of winter. The skies are dark. The trees are scorched. You breathe ash in the air and food. The only place to find it is from these post-industrial fossils called cans or crates uh, that are in abandoned houses and stores. Uh, in, the, in the novel, it's interesting. Uh, McCarthy doesn't put any chapters in the book as if to say there's no overarching plan. There's no sense of direction or purpose. And it's dangerous because everyone's looking for food. And so around every corner, there are people either looking to take your food or, and I said it's bleak, take you as food. Now, the father and the son encourage each other throughout the novel. And they have this saying that they say to each other that you need to carry the fire. The thought there is that even in post-apocalyptic culture, when there's nothing else, there's still these sense of uh, a flower that, as Lewis, as Lewis said, sense of a flower they've not yet found, that in the past culture or future culture, there's still something, a value of language, a value of ceremony that we can hold on to that gives us some sense of transcendence. Well, around this one turn, the boy is taken by a robber and knifed to throat. The father quickly reacts and uses one of his precious bullets and shoots the robber. And we interrupt the scene here when the father is cleaning the gore out of his son's hair. The boy sat tottering. The man watched him that he not topple into the flames. He kicked holes in the sand for the boy's hips and shoulders where he would sleep and he sat holding him while he tousled his hair before the fire to dry it. All of this like some ancient anointing, so be it. Evoke the forms. Where you've nothing else, construct ceremonies out of the air and breathe upon them. Cormac McCarthy seems to be saying that even when we are reduced to a bare life, a, an animalistic existence, we are still liturgical animals. Evoke the forms, construct the ceremonies. Everyone is on the road, and the road is a hard place, and everyone is longing for home. Welcome to Waterstone. We exist to pump you up. We're going to begin a new sermon series called Songs for the Road, and it's from a unique passage, uh, a collection in the Bible. In the book of Psalms, there's 150, but it, it's the song book. It's the songs that God gave to Israel and said, here, sing these. And uh, it, within that 150, there are these 15, Psalms 120 through 134, that all begin with the title, Psalms of Ascent. Now, they're called that because the Jewish pilgrims walking to Jerusalem from wherever they lived, whatever other countries, they would walk for the Jewish holidays, three festivals every year. As they would walk, they would sing these songs. And the one thing you notice as you read, and I do hope you read all 15 several times, but the one thing you would notice is that they're short, 
They're memorable and they're easily memorized, as you would think of songs that you would sing while you're on a road trip. And uh, they're all called Psalms of Ascent because no matter where you were coming from, valley or mountain, when you got to Jerusalem, you always went up to the temple. And not only there, walking up to the temple, but when you would get to the temple, you would meet with God. So you would be up and up. Psalms of Ascent. And each psalm reveals to us a unique way that we can connect with God. So one of the reasons I'm excited about this series and this summer is that each week we're going to talk about how to connect with God. The hard part today, though, is the first song for the road, it's a tough song. Let's, let's listen to it. Psalm 120. I'll read, you follow along, we'll have it on the screen. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you and what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The word of the Lord. Tough song. Let's dive in, get a sense of what it means, what makes it hard, and then after we understand some of what the song's about, we're going to see two unique ways that we can connect with God when the road is hard. Sound good? Buckled in, ready to drive. Road trip. <laughs> Psalm 120. The first verse gives us the, the setting. I call on the Lord in my distress. It's an interesting word. It's often translated anguish, affliction, adversity. What's interesting is the compound word, and when you break it down to its root, it comes from a root that means to squeeze, to pressure. Something is happening to the writer of this song, and we don't know who that writer is, but something's happening that's pressuring them, that's filling them with a press of anxiety. It's keeping them awake at night. It's capturing their thoughts by day. Distress. Yeah. We, we, we don't know what it is, but we get some clues about this distress. If you look at verse 2, first clue, this writer is in distress because of this. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. There are people in his life who are using words to tear him down, to lie, to deceive. Now, it seems this is happening from a group, as the word tongues is in plural, but could be happening person to person. We are all reminded, I want to remind us, of the power of words. The proverb says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. I want to remind you parents that the words you infuse into your children's life, small or grown, 
have huge power. Filter them. Guard them. Think them through, especially when you're angry. I want to remind you married couples, as I do all the young marrieds and the weddings that I do, that you have a massive power in your relationship. It's called words. And the words you share with one another as a married couple mean more coming from you than they do anyone else because you live together and are extremely exposed and vulnerable together. And so when you praise your spouse, it means so much more than anyone else's praise. Do you remember this? And do you remember that the words shared between spouse that love that level can do deep damage? Guard your words. Filter them. Think them through. Your job as a spouse, by the way, is to own the same view of your spouse that Jesus owns of them. His opinion of them counts, and you remind them of that as much as you can. Loved and beautiful. The power of words. Now, I bet we could bring each one of you up, sit you down here, and say, tell me a story of when someone used words to hurt you. I imagine you could give a date and a place. Words that hurt. We are reminded from this song that one of the ways we get on the road of distress is when we use words recklessly and malignantly. So we're reminded of the power of words. But as I said, it looks like it's coming from a group. It's not just person to person. It's also from a group that is doing something to put this writer on the road to distress. Uh, we're reminded that in every road we're in a culture, and within that culture there are those groups that lie to us, that deceive us. Groups like advertisers who claim to know what we need. <laughs> groups like storytellers who write their movies to say everyone can have a happy ending. Groups like politicians who just say, well, if the next election comes to me, I will give you security and prosperity. And pastors who say, if you buy my book and send in the check, I'll paste on a smile and give you the life you've always wanted. There are groups that deceive us, that lie to us and put us on the road to distress. There's another on-ramp onto this road of distress in verse five. We see woe to me. Now I just wanna underline that word woe for a minute. This is what makes this a lament, and we'll talk more about lament in a moment, but this is like funeral language. This is like, I'm in deep grief. I am falling down in tears. I woe to me. I'm in distress that I dwell in Meshach and that I live among the tents of Kedar. So when you're in a Psalms and you read things like this, this is where you need to do what I did and say, I don't have any clue what this means. So you get a commentary on the Psalms or you type it in on the internet and you find out that Meshach is actually way up north in modern Turkey on the Black Sea. It's as far north in the known world as you could imagine in that time. Kedar is on the extreme southern edge of the Arabian desert. So do you see what the poet is doing here a little bit? These are extremes, north, south. I think he's trying to communicate two things. One, part of distress, and we'll have days in our lives being on the road that we feel very 
far from God. As far as you could get. I mean, realistically, you could never walk from Meshach, you could never walk from Kedar to Jerusalem on your own. It's too far, too dangerous. That's the second thing I think he's trying to communicate. You will have days in your life when you will feel exposed to the elements that you, we cannot control. Death, disease, financial struggle, broken relationships. There are elements coming into our lives that put us into the wilderness when we feel far from God and exposed to the elements. There's a third way that we get on the road to distress. It's words, it's wilderness, and in verses six and seven, we read, too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The psalmist is saying, the way I live my life for God is, is around this book, and I believe this book is God's way for human flourishing. So that when God says do, he means do help yourself. And when he says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. And so I walk this book, I live this book, but there are those who do not want this book or this God. There are those who say, I know, I won't even listen to you, shut up. You say you speak for human flourishing, I don't believe you. So it's, it's misunderstanding at best, it's hostility at worst. And we remember that Israel has always been a community and the church has always been a community that's counter-cultural. We get isolated. We get uh, shunned. We, we get ignored. And in worst case, we get killed for what we believe to be flourishing, for what we believe to be the only way to have life with God. There's the road. It's a distressing place, the road. It's a place of wor where words hurt. It's a place where we experience wilderness from the uncontrollable elements that come into our life. It's a place where we receive opposition from the world. So how do we survive? How do we keep walking on this road when it's the distress road? There are two things, two kinds of rest areas, two ways of praying that help us connect with God on distress road. The first rest area is called lament. This song is a lament. Now I wanna make a couple of comments about that. First, I want you to be aware, if you were to read all the Psalms, 150 of them, listen, 70% of the Psalms are lament. Let that sink in for a moment. God says, here, sing these songs. And 70% of them are lament. A few years ago, I was uh, preaching, I can't remember what. Uh, I shared during the sermon a prayer that I pray for Waterstone every day. Usually I'm at my kitchen table. I live just across the parking lot. I face west. I lift my hands and I pray for you. And here's one of the things I pray for you every day. It goes like this. I pray that God will bless you, not with ease or endless triumph, but with endurance and the right number of tears. Now, I got an email that week. The gist of the email was stop 
praying for me. <laughs> I emailed him back. I said, let's get together for coffee. We met at the Starbucks at Bellevue and Kipling. I asked Tommy about this. He said, well, it sounds like you're praying for trouble to come into my life. I said to him, I don't need to pray for trouble to come into your life. <laughs> it's coming. As Rich Mullins sung, there's bound to come some trouble. What I'm praying is for you to be prepared. In fact, that's my job, to prepare the saints for trouble. It's coming. I never saw him again after that. I can't blame him. He's looking for something different. 70% of the Psalms are laments. What's a lament? Lament is two things. It's a way of praying that involves two aspects. The one aspect is deep sorrow, tears, grief, feeling sad, and telling God from that sadness how much it hurts. <coughs> grief. And the other sense of lament is justice, where you plead with God, you recruit him into the trouble, you say, God, I'm fallen here. I need you to help. I need your justice. Come in and fix this. There's this sense of grief, and there's this demand for justice. We see it here in the psalm. Look at verses 3 and 4. After we hear about the lying tongues, lying lips and deceitful tongues, it's a poetic device where he starts talking to the lying lips and the deceitful tongues. He says, what will God do to you, and what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you. Justice with and warrior sharp arrows with burning coals of the broom bush. The broom bush was a hard wood in the Middle East that you could never burn it up. It never turns to ashes, it turns to charcoal. And what they used to do in the ancient wars was to get the broom bush and get it charcoal hot and shoot it. And the, the writer is saying, I want God to shut them up, sear their lips together. God. Engage. It's a unique way of praying, isn't it? And I want to argue that we need to learn to pray this way. I want to argue that we need to read one psalm a day and pray it and ask the Holy Spirit to bring people and situations to our minds as we read that psalm. And that's praying that psalm. I suggest that if we learn to pray this way, lament, three things will happen. First, you'll feel better. If you read all the 150 Psalms, you will be amazed at the lack of depression in those Psalms. Why? Because they get the feelings that hurt from here to here. And you feel better once you've taken the toxic and the bitter and the, the hopelessness from here to hear you feel better. God knows when you get hurt with words, when you feel in the wilderness, God knows exactly how you're feeling. He knows when you're angry. He knows when you, you need justice. Why not be emotionally honest with the one who knows you best? Why not? You'll feel better. 
You know, science even proves this now. I read about a study several years ago in Keele University in England where they discovered that a person who does not normally curse or swear could hold their hands in ice water for twice as long if they cursed and swore. <laughs> Try it. <I> don't, <laughs> here, here, here's a paragraph from the study. Our hypothesis is that by swearing, the speaker experiences an emotional response due to breaking a taboo. And the emotional response is sufficient to set off an adrenaline surge that brings increased pain tolerance. Now, here's the boundary. If you swear too often in everyday situations, the power of swearing won't be there when you really need it. <laughs> swearing can be an effective and readily available short-term pain reliever if you are in a situation where there is no access to medical care or painkillers. First of all, parents, I'm not saying this. They're saying this. All right. I'm suggesting from the Psalms that there is health in expressing the deep, even negative emotions to God. He's big enough to handle it. You're not going to scare him. Tell him how much it hurts. Tell him. You'll feel better, you'll think better. What you begin to do as you pray these psalms is get perspective. You begin to understand as you give your hurt to God and as you, you plead with him to come in and invade this situation, you begin to see a bigger picture. You begin to understand that this event, this hurt, doesn't have to define my life. You begin to understand that this is not the last word on who I am or what happens to me. One of the stories I love to tell about lament and praying these psalms comes from Kathleen Norris in her book, The Cloister Walk. She actually lived with monks for a time and learned how to pray the psalms. Now she travels the country and teaches people how to pray the lament psalms, especially the psalms we call the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms are that, those part of the lament psalms that are more anger than sadness. They're rich in anger. One of the most famous ones is Psalm 109. And so one of uh, Kathleen Norris' teaching this class, she teaches this group how to pray Psalm 109. Psalm 109 is famous for being a, 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 a really hard song. You'll never hear it preached on at a church, never. There's a part of it that goes, it, it's written by David, and he's either talking about when Saul was trying to kill him or when Absalom's, his son's friends were trying to kill him. And David's just crushed and the words are hurting and he's just, he needs to tell God what's going on and how he feels. And he prays during this one stretch of it, may his children become wandering beggars. May his mom die. And may creditors take everything he has. So, Kathleen Norris teaches this group how to pray this psalm. Somewhere, somewhere in the world needs you praying them that for them because they're being abused, they're being oppressed. Pray it. She walks home, I mean, she gets home, and her seven-year-old granddaughter comes running to her in tears, just broken, broken tears. Honey, sit down, tell me what happened. The little girl proceeds to tell her grandmother that she had ridden her bike a mile to the public pool on a hot August day in the South, Gets there 10 minutes before the pool closes, uh, a, a lifeguard comes out, 
15-year-old lifeguard comes out and says, the pool's closing, you can't come in. And the way he says it is just so unkind, he crushes her with his abrupt words. She's crying, crying, riding her way all the way back. She gets home. Grandpa can't console her. Grandma walks in. Here we go. Grandma says, honey, honey, I just learned how to pray in these kinds of situations. <laughs> Sit down on the couch and let's pray Psalm 109 together. <laughs> the grandmother begins reading, may his children become wandering beggars and may his mom die. And may creditors take everything he has, and the little girl says, stop, stop, Grandma, he's just a kid. <laughs> Perspective. Lament helps us feel better, helps us think better, and helps us be better. If hatred is the natural response to being injured, forgiveness is the supernatural response. And the way that we get from hate to forgive is lament. In fact, I'm convinced. I've watched it. I've experienced it. You don't get to forgiveness until you've done your time with lament. Miroslav Vov teaches at Yale Divinity School He's a Croatian and grew up during the Bosnian conflict. He puts it this way. For followers of the crucified Messiah, the main message of the imprecatory Psalms is this. Rage belongs before God. This is no mere cathartic discharge of pent-up aggression before the Almighty who ought to care, much more significantly by placing unattended rage before God, we place both our unjust enemy and our own vengeful self face to face with a God who loves and does justice. Hidden in the dark chambers of our hearts and nourished by the system of darkness, hate grows and seeks to infest everything with its hellish will to exclusion. In the light of the justice and love of God, however, hate recedes and the seed is planted for the miracle of forgiveness. We're on the road of distress. Words, wilderness, war. The first thing we need as we walk that road of distress to connect with God is we need to learn to lament. Tell God how much it hurts. Demand that he enter the situation. Second thing we need to do, rest area, is repentance. What's interesting is this comes from the Hebrew grammar of this poem, and I want to point something out in verses 1 and 2. In English, it reads, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. In Hebrew, it reads this way, on the Lord I call in my distress. Verse 2, Lord, save me from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. The poet intentionally reverses the word order to catch our attention to say there's something else going on here on this road to distress. When we are on the road to distress, it is very important that we practice a discipline that church history has called repentance. Repentance means continual turning our attention to God. 
turning away from the things that are distracting us, the things that are uh, diverting us, turning to God. Every sentence begins on the Lord. The Lord. Every sentence for us, especially on the road to distress, needs to begin. Lord. Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things be added unto you. Repentance. Repentance means, and ask the question, who do you trust? Who do you trust? Jesus says to me, I made you, I love you. Jesus says to you, I made you, I love you. Which means, by the way, that every person we meet is our neighbor. Jesus says, I rule the world. Jesus says, you messed up my world. You refused to allow me to rule over you. You refused to allow me to be for you. You messed it up. But Jesus says, what's true is that at the center of all history is a cross. The cross says, I came down, became one of you, lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died. I give you righteousness, my righteousness. I give you forgiveness. You're clean. You receive that. You walk the road to dis on the distress road, and you get home. Always home. Repentance. Staying focused on the Lord. Having him begin each of your sentences. So I have two questions as we prepare to come now to the table. First question. What road are you on? What road? Jesus Christ said in a massive statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So according to Jesus, there are only two roads. Jesus' road and every other road. Which road are you? Paul said, one of the early apostles, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I invite you to proclaim Jesus as Lord and get on the road, the road to forgiveness, the road to heaven, the road to the kingdom of God. If you haven't done that, if you haven't gotten on the road, do it now, just in the quietness of this moment. Jesus, your Lord, I need you. Jesus is Lord. Second question. For those of you that are on the Jesus road, have you told God how much it hurts? Whatever it is, words, wilderness, war, have you told God how much it hurts? And verse 1 says, on the Lord I call in my distress. Next line, he answers me. Tell the Lord how much it hurts. He answers. How does he answer? Simply this way. 
Jesus prayed these psalms. He prayed them all the way to the cross. He died with the words of the psalms on his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. He prayed these psalms for you and for me. He walked this road for you and for me. He laid down his life for us so that we can be home. No matter what happens here, home is the last word for us. Jesus loves you. He's laid down his life for you so that you can be home with him. Gerald Sitzer is a longtime professor at Whitworth College in the state of Washington. Several years ago, he was driving with his family home from a family outing. He has his wife, his mother, and his four daughters. When a drunk driver going 85 miles an hour jumped a medium, hit the van head on, and in a matter of minutes, Gerald Sitzer held his wife as she died, held his young daughter as she died, and then held his mom as she died. Over the next years, Gerald Sitzer wrestled with the sovereignty of God. This makes no sense. He wrestled with the answer, God, answer me. Why? That wrestling eventually turned into a book that we have in our bookstore that I would recommend every Waterstoner read. It's called A Grace Disguised. The God I know has experienced pain and therefore understands my pain. In Jesus, I have felt God's tears trembled before his death on the cross and witnessed the redemptive power of his suffering. The incarnation means that God cares so much that he chose to become human and suffer loss, though he never had to. I have grieved long and hard and intensely, but I have found comfort knowing that the sovereign God, who is in control of everything, is the same God who has experienced the pain I live with every day. No matter how deep the pit into which I descend, I keep finding God there. He is vulnerable to pain, quick to shed tears, and acquainted with grief. God is a suffering sovereign who feels the sorrow of the world. For three years now, I have cried at every communion service I have attended. I have not only brought my pain to God, but also felt as never before the pain God suffered for me. I have mourned before God because I knew that God has mourned too. God understands suffering because God has suffered. I invite our host to bring the table of the Lord to us, and I invite you in your time, if you want to proclaim Jesus as Lord and tell him you love him, and if you want to come and bring all your pain, whatever burdens you're carrying today, bring those to the table and hear Jesus say to you, I am acquainted with grief. I know. I answer you. I love you. I've laid down my life. Come home. Come home. On the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it. He said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, Remember me 
In the same way, after the Passover meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. When you're ready, go to any station. There's gluten-free in the back. Tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, and be home with Jesus. Come when you're ready.